Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Friday, June 8th, 2007, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Joining us today is the Society of Critical Care Medicine's President-Elect, Phil Barry, MD, MBA, FCCM. Dr. Barry will be discussing a, published, a, a study recently published in the Annals of Surgery entitled Early Antibiotic Treatment for Severe Acute Necrotizing Pancreatitis. Dr. Barry is a professor of surgery and public health at Weill Medical College of Cornell University in New York City and was a co-author on this important study. The reference is the Annals of Surgery, May 2007, Volume 245, pages 674 to 683. And on a personal note, this was a, a topic that I'm very much excited about speaking with people on, especially people like Dr. Barry. And uh, Dr. Barry, this is his second visit to the podcast, speaking on infectious issues in the uh, ICU and using antibiotics to prevent them. So I thought this would be a nice uh, follow-up topic for Dr. Barry. So thank you again so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. Well, thank you, Rich. When I uh, uh, did the first podcast with you, as I recall, we discussed uh, uh, the use of antibiotic uh, prophylaxis in the intensive care unit in general. We made only passing mention to the issues uh, that are quite complex indeed surrounding antibiotic prophylaxis, specifically of severe acute pancreatitis. So I'm uh, uh, delighted to be back and to have the opportunity to discuss this very controversial area with you and your listeners. Great. And, um, you know, it's about a year later, so we have a, a year's worth of data. And I think you were actually alluding to this particular study in our last uh, podcast, but it hadn't been published yet. So now we can spend a little bit more time. I, I thought we'd begin by giving you an opportunity to flesh out a little bit of some of the background issues of severe acute pancreatitis and, uh, you know, the big picture issue of preventing necrotizing pancreatitis from becoming infected necrotizing pancreatitis, and if you want to sort of take it from there. Well, I'd be delighted. Um, people who work in intensive care units uh, see only the most severe cases of acute pancreatitis. But in fact, pancreatitis presents with a spectrum of severity, and most patients actually have self-limited disease and do quite well. They may never require critical care. Current estimates are that about 85% of all patients with acute pancreatitis have relatively mild, self-limited disease and uh, will get better on their own, possibly needing a, a laparoscopic cholecystectomy at some later time point if their disease has been caused by gallstones. 
So first, I think it's important to point out that we're talking about a subset of patients with very severe disease who are at increased risk for complications. Probably the most feared complication of severe acute pancreatitis is infection, but it is by no means the only uh, uh, such severe complication. Uh, other things such as intestinal obstruction, intestinal fistulization, uh, gastrointestinal or retroperitoneal hemorrhage from uh, pseudoaneurysm formation, all are possible and possibly life-threatening complications of pancreatitis. Uh, they're beyond the scope of our discussion today. First of all, let's talk about what constitutes severe pancreatitis. Up until relatively recently, there hasn't been a consensus definition, uh, but uh, they are emerging now, and there are several different ways to assess this. The time-honored way has been to use a pancreatitis-specific scoring system, such as the Glasgow or Emory score, or the Ranson score developed at uh, New York University in the early 1970s. Interestingly, these scores have withstood the test of time uh, despite improvements in diagnostics and critical care and remain reasonably useful estimates of severity of illness. But I think nowadays most people believe that the gold standard for the diagnosis of severe acute pancreatitis is to perform computed tomography. But not just any CT scan because what you're really trying to do is CT contrast pancreatography so that thin cuts through the pancreas are timed against a rapid dynamic infusion of contrast, hoping that the viable pancreas will actually be um, bright on the CT scan. Uh, Radiolucent uh, areas or hypoperfused areas represent pancreatic necrosis, and by definition, nowadays, most people agree that uh, pancreatic necrosis comprising more than 30% of the volume of the gland uh, constitutes severe uh, pancreatic necrosis. Now, who goes on to get infected? The more uh, severity of illness one has, the greater the risk of infection. Probably the more uh, necrosis that is identified objectively, the greater the risk of infection. The problem is that we're assessing the volume of ischemic or infarcted pancreas, but most of the infection actually occurs in the surrounding retroperitoneal fat. So. Um, some people wonder whether these attempts at objectivity even get us where we're trying to go diagnostically. The risk of infection uh, may be as high as 25 to 50%. The likelihood of infection begins to increase at about seven days after the onset of symptoms, peaks at around 14 days, and for the most part has subsided uh, beyond 21 days. Uh, most people believe that the source of the organisms that uh, cause secondary infection of severe acute pancreatitis is uh, gut-derived pathogens, uh, perhaps uh, reaching the uh, uh, pancreatic bed through lymphatics or even through bacterial translocation as a result of splanchnic ischemia that occurs from hypovolemia before the patients are resuscitated. I think I'll stop there and... Uh, and uh, turn it back over to you. So, um, 
just a couple of follow-ups on that. I remember reading in, in uh, one of the papers that they compared, they made severe acute pancreatitis analogous to severe sepsis syndrome, where sepsis with organ dysfunction is severe, is severe sepsis syndrome, and pancreatitis with organ dysfunction would be severe acute pancreatitis. Is that a reasonable statement? Do you I think like that, that is uh, reasonable, and certainly there are analogies that can be drawn. Um, early severe acute pancreatitis uh, certainly manifests the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, uh, but the pancreas and surrounding peripancreatic fat is still sterile. At some point, um, some patients develop infection. Probably the best way to diagnose that infection is with CT-guided fine needle aspiration of the phlegmon. Um, but um, it can be very difficult to sort out when sterile inflammation ends and invasive infection begins in the subset of patients who are going to go on to have that complication. I'm glad you mentioned it, though, because in our study, uh, for those patients who uh, could not uh, receive a CT scan, for example, they were in uh, uh, early acute renal failure and, and uh, it was desired not to expose them to intravenous contrast, we used uh, organ system dysfunction as a surrogate for uh, severe pancreatitis as an entry criterion. Before we get into this particular study, maybe I could just take two minutes and talk to you a little bit about your paradigm for approaching these kinds of patients, and I'll just bring up a couple points and you can make some comments. So first of all, again, from the consensus statement published in Critical Care Medicine that we alluded to, I believe, in our previous podcast, that it was it was a reasonable consensus that not every patient with severe acute pancreatitis who gets admitted even to an intensive care unit who is hemodynamically stable should be started on prophylactic antibiotics to prevent necrosis from becoming infected because to the extent that it had been looked at previously, it didn't appear to give the theoretical benefit of improving outcomes. Is that a reasonable statement, number one, to start with? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, to uh, make sure it's clear in everyone's mind, uh, the uh, consensus that was published in Critical Care Medicine a couple of years ago uh, did reach the conclusion that antibiotic prophylaxis was not supported by the evidence and was not recommended. The readership really should go back and um, and uh, look at that consensus document if they have any involvement with patients with pancreatitis at all because it discusses far more than just antibiotic prophylaxis and really was the, uh, was the best evidence at the time. It was done very rigorously uh, in open forum with uh, well over 100 participants. And then the next step that starts to get confusing for me as an intensivist is, so that patient's put in the unit, and they start out stable, and they may become unstable. And I have a two-part question, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. So a patient becoming unstable at that point, hemodynamically unstable, developing signs and symptoms of actual severe sepsis, I think even you would say it's not unreasonable at that point to start antibiotics for concerns of well, an I think we have or, to just, I oh, think okay. we have to define at what point. Right, that that was going to be my question. And okay. then and then as the second part of that to let you talk is what is the role of a fine needle aspiration in that patient? Okay. That's the well, um patients with severe pancreatitis can be febrile, have leukocytosis, have a fluid requirement and indeed uh have um uh, signs of organ dysfunction. Um the incidence of ARDS is about 8% in severe acute pancreatitis, and the incidence of uh, acute renal failure is variable, um, but depends upon 
uh, how much delay there is in the presentation of the patient and how well the early resuscitation is going. But the risk of uh, infection superseding, as we mentioned before, is almost negligible before day seven. So you can have a patient who looks really sick you know, full-blown systemic inflammatory response syndrome. The odds of them having sepsis before day seven are very, very small, and I would uh, continue to advocate withholding antibiotics from those patients. And then the the FNA, the timing of that? With respect to fine needle aspiration, I think that's the test of choice to uh, determine if a patient is um, infected. Again, that's done with dynamic CT pancreatography, and fine needle aspiration is done of the phlegmon for gram stain and culture uh, with the assistance of our interventional radiology colleagues. Again, though, if that fine needle aspirate is negative for infection, I would still favor withholding antibiotics simply because the risk of uh, acquisition of resistant organisms should infection occur subsequently or superinfection with fungi, for example, uh, is quite high in patients who are exposed to antibiotics who don't need them. And is there, uh, are there leaders in the field like yourself who apply the concept of sort of antibiotic de-escalation to pancreatitis, maybe saying that we don't want to be wrong, so you hit hard, get the FNA, and if it's negative, stop antibiotics, or is the concerns, are they slightly different there? Well, we're, we're, we're sort of sliding from prophylaxis into early empiric therapy. Right. Um, and uh, when you're out at the day 7 to 14 day range, let's say, for example, that the patient has come in, been resuscitated, and looked well for a few days, but then starts to get sick again. You know, for the purposes of consistently consistency, let's say that's in the day 7 to 10 range. Right. It's clinical judgment to start antibiotics at that point. Okay. Uh, and certainly you wouldn't be faulted at that point in the course, but that's really early empiric therapy, not prophylaxis of infection. Uh, FNA is indicated then, and in my practice, if the FNA was negative, I would then stop antibiotics. Okay, so it is it is actually analogous in some people's minds then to a negative bronchoscopy in somebody with a presumed pneumonia that you started therapy. I think, that, I think that's an entirely fair statement. Great. Sorry, I didn't want to get too much off a tangent, but these are sort of very relevant issues tied into what your study was. Sure. Um, if you wanted to talk a little bit about the literature leading up to this study, because that's one of the challenges in this area is that recent meta-analyses that may have shown some benefit to antibiotics, and then your particular study, you can talk about that. If well, you this whole subject clearly causes a great deal of consternation. Because um, I, I did a quick Medline search uh, uh, not too long ago and found that four meta-analyses in a review article were, have been published since uh, January 2006. So clearly this is on people's minds. The uh, meta-analyses uh, that have been published recently actually reach conflicting conclusions. Some suggest that there is no benefit to antibiotic prophylaxis. Others uh, suggest uh, that there is. And I think it boils down to the rigor with which the meta-analyses are performed and particular, particularly the degree of heterogeneity of the included studies. As with anything else, you know, meta-analysis is uh, subject, has a methodologic limitation of garbage in, garbage out. This literature goes back 30 years 
the earliest studies from the 1970s are basically worthless because they studied mild pancreatitis, had no mortality in the series at all, and used um, you know, such clearly ineffective agents as ampicillin monotherapy for prophylaxis. This literature really began in the 1980s with several studies, notably one from Italy and another from Finland, uh, that reached conflicting conclusions about the efficacy of prophylaxis for uh, prevention of infection in severe acute pancreatitis. But up until uh, relatively recently, uh, none of these studies were rigorously double-blind, placebo-controlled, and conducted in patients with proved or strongly suspected severe acute pancreatitis. So I think one has to be skeptical of meta-analyses that include many of these earlier trials because there is... Uh, there are severe methodologic shortcomings in the early literature. The first really good quality paper um, in this field was published by Eisenman and co-workers in gastroenterology in uh, 2004. Uh, the citation is Gastro 2004, Volume 126, pages 997 to 1004. Uh, this is a multicenter study from Germany led by a group that is uh, very interested in severe acute pancreatitis. And they did a randomized prospective trial of um, uh, double-blinded, pl uh, placebo-controlled, of the combination of ciprofloxacin plus metronidazole to placebo, finding no benefit to uh, antibiotic prophylaxis in what many consider to be the, really the first um, methodologically rigorous prospective trial in the field, and that leads us to the to the study that uh, we just completed. Right, and um, so again, this study of yours and the other part that seemed, I think, important to me, and again, teaching you know fellows is you're looking in the sickest possible population to see if this could be a benefit. And again, this was analogous to a, a podcast I did with Greg Martin, where he was looking at. I know it sounds silly, but he was looking at albumin and Lasix uh, to see if it was effective for patients with ARDS. And again, he said, we're going to start out with a combination first to see if there's any signal. And again, this is very similar. We're taking the sickest of the sick to see if there's any signal of benefit. Uh, correct. Um, trying to get the uh, sickest of the sick into a study um, accomplishes a couple of things. Uh, it puts the... Um, population most at risk directly under study uh, and uh, increases the statistical power of a um, manageable sized uh, sample. The mean and median Apache 2 score uh, in our patient uh, patient population was 12.7 uh, uh, in one group with a median of 12 and 11.5 uh, versus uh, a median of nine uh, in the placebo arm in our trial. To a card-carrying intensivist, that may not seem real sick. But remember that uh, this is measured in the first 24 hours, of course, and uh, oftentimes patients with pancreatitis go on to get much sicker uh, after they've been admitted. And um, to transition into your study, and just for the listeners, uh, you screened 
Oh, let me see if I can get this right. Uh, you started out with an initial screen of about 800 patients, and you were able to get it down, finally, if I got this right, to about 50 in each group. That's correct. We studied 100 patients overall. And your, your primary endpoints here focused actually on the incidence of, of development of pancreatic, or as you described before, peripancreatic infection, um, the mean days to the diagnosis of infection, and then an important, but in your study, a secondary endpoint was the the overall mortality. And if you'd like to talk about that, and it must have been challenging getting these patients in and, and consent issues and all that. Yeah, this was not an easy study to do. Um, and uh, as you can see, we you know ended up enrolling about 12% of the patients who were screened. But uh, we did not want to cut corners here because we wanted to, uh, insofar as possible, have our statement of uh, efficacy or lack thereof be based on a firm foundation of the sickest possible patients. And this this is the sickest patient population to be enrolled in such a trial. And I remember uh, some of the comments in your discussion were the issue of uh, other antibiotics being started um, and things like that, non, non-study antibiotics, if you'd like to talk about that from your perspective as, a, as an investigator. That's actually been one of the major problems with the earlier literature, and that is that uh, uh, you know someone exercising clinical judgment, you know, even though a patient uh, you know might be in a uh, you know an open label placebo controlled study or a double blinded study, decides that uh, you know for the patient's benefit, it's better to make sure that they're getting antibiotics. You know, that really uh, is a protocol violation that makes it difficult to impossible uh, to analyze the results of such a trial. So we were very concerned about that and tried to keep it to an absolute minimum. And I was going to ask you, was uh, I couldn't tell from reading it, the, the, the fine needle aspiration, was it like at X number of days that every patient in the study got one, or was it uh, within a certain amount of time? It was not a mandatory thing. It was based on clinical indications, and so we did not specify that one had to be done or when it had to be done. That was based on the judgment of the treating clinicians. Um, but it seemed like it happened... Uh, to some degree, I guess it was said pancreatic infections were diagnosed by image-guided FNA. Uh, Thirty-seven patients underwent FNA, and eleven actually had another one for a total Correct. of twenty-six. Uh, well, eleven had twenty-six more, which oh, right. means some had uh, three and possibly even four. Uh, so you can you can imagine what the hospital course must have been of those patients. But of these one hundred patients, thirty-seven underwent fine needle aspiration, and I think that's probably consistent with the literature overall for patients of this severity. That somewhere between uh, twenty and forty percent of patients are going to develop an infection. And if you'd like to, I guess take the last five or ten minutes or so and, and make some concluding comments on your what this day the the data from this study sort of means to you and how it might be applied for the averaging intent average intensivist I, and I guess sort of the hardest part is you see a patient like this who looks so incredibly sick and as I've said to you before on these podcasts well you know we got I have antibiotics why not use antibiotics they might help and and <laughs> I guess the answer is it doesn't look like they, they are as well it, it doesn't look like they help <laughs> and uh, I uh, 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 opined as much in an article in the American Journal of Surgery way back in 1996, 
So uh, my uh, position about this has been fairly consistent over the years, and this uh, uh, study that we just published uh, last month uh, certainly uh, corroborates in the strongest possible terms, I think, that uh, antibiotic prophylaxis does not prevent infection, even in severe cases of necrotizing pancreatitis. The problem is with giving antibiotics to patients who don't need them is you run the risk of superinfection, fungal infections, uh, now Clostridium difficile-related disease. And I think we really have to be very careful about using antibiotics for patients who truly need them or who are so sick and uh, are hanging so much in the balance that um, the patient you, that you can't take a chance that you'll be wrong. I think it's important for our readership to remember, though, that even in this sickest patient population, 80% of the patients did not develop infection. Uh, right, and, look, and that the mortality... They all the world like they have sepsis, but 80% of them never developed an infection. And uh, as you would also emphasize that the mortality was completely unchanged by randomizing people to antibiotics in the sickest completely population. Completely unchanged. Uh, as as was uh, uh, you know several of our other secondary endpoints, there was really no difference uh, whatsoever between the the active prophylaxis and the placebo arm uh, in our study. Uh, adverse events were the same, um, and uh, the need for operative um, debridement of the pancreas was the same. So there really was absolutely no difference. Um. And I guess uh, two last questions is, is any particular thoughts or role for antifungal therapy in any of this or thoughts on your about this? Well, uh, I think probably not with the um, proviso that uh, if you do, as a clinician, opt for prophylaxis with antibiotics of severe acute pancreatitis, the likelihood of later fungal infection increases significantly. So if you're using antibiotic prophylaxis early, you probably should add antifungal therapy to your empiric therapy later. But I don't think that, uh, you know, the way to avoid fungal infections, in my view, is to avoid antibiotics. And then one last point, which I, uh, should be fun to talk about, is uh, as somebody who does these kinds of interventions, the, the timing of intervention for, for patients, surgical intervention for severe pancreatitis, and what is your current intervention of choice? Well, that uh, has been in uh, flux, and uh, we now are uh, reaching consensus that early operation is not in the patient's best interest. When we operate early, we're dealing with very edematous tissue planes. There's often hypervascularity and hyperemia, and the uh, necrotic tissue has not demarcated. So we try not to operate at all. Uh, a patient with a positive fine needle aspirate uh, is a candidate for operation. But if that patient isn't really sick, I would consider treating that patient with antibiotics to try to buy time. And if you can get the operation uh, delayed as late as possible, even up to three or four weeks or more, you can operate often on a more stable patient. You can operate on a necrotic sequestrum in the retroperitoneum that has demarcated itself, and that allows you to do a more limited operation in selected circumstances, even a laparoscopic debridement of the lesser sac. 
whereas early operation uh, is associated with blood loss, uh, fistula formation, the need to leave the abdomen open, late uh, ventral hernia formation, and the need actually to do multiple operations. Twenty years ago, I had a patient that I operated on 18 times. Uh, but that was a completely different era in the surgical management of pancreatitis. It's impossible to imagine that we would manage any such patient that way nowadays. Uh, one of the problems of this is no one particular hospital, unless they set up sort of a regional pancreatitis center for, for a metropolitan area, can see uh, a, certainly a large number of these as opposed to referral centers for other types yes, of issues. You know, even with our interest in pancreatitis uh, uh, here at uh, the Cornell campus of New York Presbyterian, you know, we admit maybe one patient a month to the surgical ICU with severe acute pancreatitis. This is uh, uh, perhaps one of the most challenging things that uh, um, the ICU clinician can face, a hemodynamically unstable patient with organ dysfunction from severe, from severe acute pancreatitis. Um, but we'll probably never know the answer as to whether the care for these patients should be re regionalized because uh, they're a subset of a subset of patients. We've uh, been speaking today with my colleague, Dr. Phil Barry, who will be next year's president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And we've been discussing an article published actually in the May 2000 edition of the Annals of Surgery, focusing on the topic of early antibiotic treatment for severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis. This was another important, uh, large randomized trial, again, showing no uh, benefit to randomizing patients to try and prevent infection uh, in the setting of necrosis. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry, for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me back on your program. This concludes our podcast for Friday, June 8th, 2007. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. As a general study rule, practitioners should start preparing intensively for their board exams at least one year in advance. Register today for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Adult and Pediatric Multiprofessional Critical Care Review Courses to be held August 7th through 11th, 2007 in Chicago, Illinois, USA. As a registered participant of a review course, you'll receive a free study aid worth $175. In addition, you can enhance your board review by registering for one of two pre-courses the ABIM Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review, or the Rapid Response System Training. Build a solid foundation and further your study efforts with the only multi-professional association that focuses solely on critical care. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling 1-847-827-6888.